Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week we are discussing one of my picks. We are diving back into the Animorphs graphic novels with the second one entitled The Visitor. Uh, This is adapted from the 1996 book by Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant. Uh, The graphic novel adaptation work is done by Chris Grine. And this came out just last year in 2021. This is a Rachel book. Uh, Every Animorphs book uh, takes turns shifting from which protagonist is the central focus. And in the case of the original novels, the literal uh, speaker. In the graphic novels, it feels a bit different just because they're like less narrative heavy with the adaptation. Uh, It's a comic format, but Rachel is still our primary vehicle plot-wise in terms of who a lot of the character drama is going to center around. This is the cat morph cover. Rachel morphing into a cat. Not a lion, not a tiger, just a cute little house cat who is going to have some nice, nice facing off against Visser Free in a basement. But that's probably me getting ahead of myself. Don't know that I necessarily want to do like a super big plot summary up front so much as sort of jump around and do relevant details as we go. But essentially the main conceit of this book is that after their adventure in book one, the kids aren't really sure where to move next in their battle against the Yurks. The entrance that they knew of to the Yurk pool has been closed off. They're not sure what the best strategy is going forward. They're also not all fully unified on even continuing to fight at all. But the conflict in this book takes a personal element for Rachel, where Rachel's friend Melissa is the daughter of Assistant Principal Chapman. Chapman in the first book being established as being a prominent yurk controller, or human controller rather, possessed by a yurk. And the group essentially wants Rachel to sort of refoster her friendship with Melissa as a way of getting physically close to Chapman and investigating him that way. And what Rachel finds is that in the time that Melissa's parents have been taken over by yurks, they have gotten much colder much less loving of their daughter. They're really only concerned like with their mission and keeping up appearances, but not actually and continuing to foster that parental relationship, which has led Melissa's emotional health to go down the drain, which in turn pisses Rachel off. And essentially we get scenes of Rachel trying to investigate what's going on with the Chapmans by morphing into their cat Fluffer, And we'll get into more of the drama there later on. But what were your impressions of this book? Uh, Very positive. I liked this one more than the first. Um, I think the espionage angle um, in terms of like, well, we can turn into animals so we can be undetected if we're an animal that you're expecting to see. um, And using that as a way to try to gain information was really good. It was a cool way of having the kids figure out a way to move forward after um they kind of completely failed at the end of the last story 
expanding on Rachel's character is really good. The additional details about the way the Yurks operate uh, makes them more monstrous, makes the need for the kids to be fighting uh, more clear. And um, yeah, no, I just thought this one was really good. Yeah, this is a story where the specific morphs aren't like flamboyant and immediately like attention grabbing you know there are later animorphs books where you have like the cover of a girl turning into a squid you know it's like less dramatic animals that make you go well how the fuck are they gonna find one of those to absorb you know like this case it is a house cat and it's very much about how do we use the powers and the creatures we have at our disposal to do what we can do? And, you know, you mentioned, like, animals being unnoticed, and that's sort of the advantage of a thing like a house cat, is that, you know, none of them in elephant form could ever go into the Chapman's house for multiple reasons. Well, they could smash into it. They could not get into it and then remain unnoticed. That's be very <laughs> noticeable. They would talk about the elephant in the room. They would talk about the literal elephant in the room, but not Fluffer. Uh, Fluffer is a bit more free to move around. But before we get towards like the actual main mission towards the end with uh, Rachel's time as a cat... We open on a scene of the Animorphs essentially all practicing their flight morphs, where each of them has a bird of prey that they can morph into. Uh, just a mention again, as happened at the end of the last book, Tobias has surpassed the two-hour time limit, so he is permanently trapped as a red-tailed hawk. And he's flying as the hawk self that is his new status quo, while everyone else is a different bird of prey, including ospreys and eagles. And yeah, we just get this opening sequence of them all flying in the sky and communicating via fox speak. How did they get the bald eagle? I did not reread the original novel this time the way that I did when we did the first one. I'm assuming it's just a matter of one was injured at Cassie's farm. Oh, yeah. Especially right. since, right. like, they're endangered and they would really want to take care of them. I assume it's just like that. Whenever I don't know, I just hand wave it as that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. And in this scene, even though it's not, like, an active battle scenario, we still get the characters thinking about the limitations of this power and that one of them points out... That if they were in trouble in Elephant Morph, they could morph back to their human body. But they are up in the sky, and if they morphed back to human, they would die. And it's just like a brief sort of aside of just another element that they need to think of, that they need to think of with their powers in terms of, if we're in a specialty morph, like say we're a bird in the sky or an undersea creature under the ground, there are things that need to be taken into consideration and might have horrifying consequences. Yeah, um, and then especially, there isn't much done with it yet, and I'm honestly quite confused as to how there isn't, like, more of an uproar in the town about, like, a child going missing. But Tobias being stuck in hawk form, I think, provides, like, a necessary immediate sense of danger to any time that they are in a morph at all, and, like, the potential that they can just get stuck as an animal forever like essentially like so far as tobias's family i assume a concern he's dead or missing now for a couple weeks probably yeah i don't 
think there's a specific time frame given here. Maybe there isn't, I just forget it. But it's definitely not a very large passage of time between books one and two. And the thing with the whole two-hour time limit that Alfengor, the Andalite prince, gave them at the beginning of book one is that it's essentially establishing the rule, and therefore, if it's going to have weight, you know it's going to actually come up. It is Chekhov's morphing limits, and I think pretty smartly they decided, uh, Apple Grant decided to use that right out of the gates, you know, and by the end of book one, we're enforcing, yes, there are consequences to these characters' missions, you know, I think it feels serious in a way that it wouldn't if, say, book one ended with Tobias being like, it was an hour and 59 minutes, but I did it. It's the killing thunderbird of uh, Animorphs. Oh, we'll get into... I, I shouldn't say that we'll get into character deaths in Animorphs. Well, we had, we had Elfengor. We had Elfengor already. We've gotten into character deaths in Animorphs. We'll, we'll, I've spoiled that we'll get more. I think you knew we would get more. Yeah, Elfengor was the Abin Sir of, Abin, of Animorphs, though. Yeah, but... I apologize if you aren't, like, as into comics superheroes as I am and didn't get both of those references. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Back to Animorphs itself. Everything is peaceful, and they're all having... They're just, you know, mildly anxious Fotspeak conversation as they're flying until they notice things flying past them and realize they are getting shot at. And there are hunters shooting down at them from above, even though one of them is literally an endangered protected species. And we get this scene of all the birds swooping down, uh, Rachel especially, and they fly down to attack these hunters. The main things of note being that one of them snatches the gun away in their talons, while another rips the other one's ponytail off. It's a terrible looking ponytail. That guy should be grateful. He does look better after the haircut. I I also appreciate disarming the idiots. These guys are, um, we, we see them again later. They are awful and should not have the right to bear arms. That bird done stole your gun, Chester. Just, yeah, these, they were shooting at a bald eagle. I, I don't have very kind thoughts about hunting to begin with. You know, philosophically, I guess, like, people say whatever the fuck about, like, populations, and I don't know enough to know for sure about just, like, I don't know, amount of deer and preserving whatever the fuck. But these, all that aside, no one is hunting for any purpose. They're not hunting to eat. These are just dickwads shooting at a bald eagle, and they got their hair snatched for it, which is fun. I also, we're gonna talk about just, you know, Grind's art throughout and just nice moments. I like the sequence of three panels of one of the hunters, like, turning and looking, and then having the moment of realization, and, like, a mouth open, bulging eyes, toothpick falling out of the mouth in shock as the bald eagle gets up to his face. There's a bald eagle coming for you. Scree! And the bald eagle takes his gun. <laughs> and, yeah, they also specifically... The birds steal the guns, drop them into the water of, like, the river or the lake or whatever, just where these men will not be able to get their guns back. And the kids then fly their way back to a hideout, where we get a nice sequence of them all demorphing in group, 
and how do you feel about these panels of morphing? Them chicken legs. Uh, this is this is full body horror morphing. It's real good. I I did not need to see what a bald eagle's beak would look like if it had teeth. I think you mean you did need to see it, and it's very well done. Sure. Yeah, it's fucking gross. Mean that as a compliment to Chris Grine. It's well done. It's fucking gross. Animorphs books should be fucking gross. We get, like, the chicken leg, like, you know, the talon extending in length to, like, human length. And we get, like, the colors transitioning from yellow into, like, pinkish, peachish skin color. We get, like, some of the toes still have more sort of, like, hawk talon-shaped nails as they're not fully finished shrinking back down. We get the teeth beaks, like you mentioned. We get a wing with the feathers beginning to split and change into fingers. We get just like parts of finger feather wings that look like broken and poked in the wrong directions before they finish fully moving back to normal. It's lovely. I think it's fun. Um, Some of the like morphs and like lower halves of faces are especially horrifying as you just like see like imprints of remaining textures of just like little bits of like feather texture on the otherwise human looking skin and it's gross. And meanwhile, everyone looks to the side and the plot point of Cassie being the best morpher continues as she is just fully normal human but with beautiful feathers and wings of just, like, mixed between, like, you know, human arm structure, but then the rest of the feathers extending of what just looks like a human with beautiful wings after everyone else has done these horrible, horrible transformations of cracks and snaps and crunches. I'm sure that's still gonna look freaky when it's halfway from being a wing, though. Sure, but compared to the rest of them... (laughs) Once everyone's demorphed, we get... Uh, just discussions between the characters, still feeling out, group dynamics. Marco's a little jackass. Yeah, part of Marco's character is that he is, like, the obnoxious, like, you know, 8th grader, ninth grader, however old they're supposed to be, with, you know, sexist comments. Here specifically we have him being glad to no longer have bird's eye view to no longer have like bird vision and he goes how many times have you been at the mall or whatever and you'll see a girl who seems good looking from far off but when you get closer she's a dog i mean if you could see this well all the time as i said he's an idiot yeah marco's a jerk you know a lot of just his character is just about him being like the jokester but also the douche and sort of like the character relationships and, like, the complexity that come from that of just, like, you know, him and Rachel developing friendship and respect, but also that doesn't mean he's not saying douchey things. They also, as a group, talk about what use their powers could have if they weren't busy fighting aliens, or they talk about working in horror movies or being stunt people, and all these things that might be fun if they weren't fighting slugs. But before the group finishes splitting up for the day, I'll just point out the little side hug between Jake and Cassie. You you notice anything going on between between these relationships and these kids? They seem close. Yep, it's yep, we're we're hinting at something in this in this fifty-four book series. May, maybe that'll go somewhere, maybe. In fifty books. I will be retired and Chris Crimes will release the last one. 
and we'll finally get to see them kiss for the first time. Just kidding, I'm never going to get to retire. <laughs> oh, God, anyway. <laughs> um, Capitalism forever. But anywho, uh, the gang splits up, goes home. Uh, Rachel is in gymnastics practice with her friend, Melissa. Mentions to Melissa how they used to hang out more. She wants to reconnect. Offers to go, like, shopping again together. And Melissa is very off-putting. Mary very just sort of brushes it off. Is like, maybe sometime. And Rachel, like, even points out that she's just getting blown off and asks what's going on. And Melissa's just not having any of it. She clearly just wants to be left alone. And then after practice, we get this scene of Rachel walking home alone. And as she's going, she gets accosted by the same hunters from earlier who are literally catcalling her. And one goes to, like, grab her arm. She shakes him off and starts running. And we get this scene of the man literally running after her, following her into a deserted alley in what is a type of evil and horrible that is different from what we've got before but is all the more upsetting because of it because this is not an alien this is just a creep chasing after a literal like high school freshman the this is these two based on this issue are like the town creepy assholes literally 10 pages ago they were shooting at just like endangered animals and now they are literally chasing down high school freshmen yeah they fucking suck yeah it is i can't tell how old they are supposed to be though i get the impression that they're probably at least a little older you know like at least must be her age but i get the impression that they're probably at least somewhat older they're not like super old but it's at least giving the sense of like douchey college or i think they're seniors probably seniors in high school yeah like douchey slightly older dudes who you know you you cannot trust them and they're a danger to everyone around them and you know there's the obvious undertones going on here of what sort of threat they might pose but before things can progress any further rachel fortunately has the morphing power and she conceals herself in the shadows of this alley the man is walking behind her says this is a dead end come on out i ain't gonna hurt ya i just dot 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 and he starts hearing this crunching and ripping and chunch and then out of the shadows comes like 75% elephant Rachel lunging at him and he screams and it's like elephant face and trunk still has some human hair bipedal but like all gray leathery skin and like fully formed tusks and she is just charging this man who screams yells to the elephant woman please don't eat me here take my wallet And she, like, elephant screams at him as he runs to his friend and they drive off in the truck in terror. Goodbye, Chester. I too would run if I was faced off by a terrifying elephant thing. Yeah. I like this scene. I I think it does a good job of, you know, like, it's very obvious, like, what sort of threat is being presented here. 
and I suspect that they probably hit about the limit of what they would have been allowed to in this book series that is like literally made for like middle schoolers you know so I don't think the lack of like anything more explicit is a bad thing you know I think this is probably a good example of the creators all around you know doing what they can within the context of the audience and everything and you know it's also just an interesting aspect of here are the human threats that these kids still have to deal with even outside of the alien invasion plot afterwards rachel uh is getting ready to continue walking home happens to run into melissa and her father chapman and they give her a ride home they have this awkward conversation awkward not just because they're not even fully friends anymore and also chapman is just you know a dad but it's also just controller chapman and when you remember that there's a yerk slug in his head then there's just something extra sinister about the panel of him smiling and going oh i know where you live this is he's so fucking creepy in this yeah no control chapman is terrifying frankly uh the just like a very ordinary looking middle-aged bearded man with like square and glasses but full-on um just like the light for some reason has decided to shine up from underneath his face to create like the creepy sort of shadows and he just smiles like oh i know where you live with this horrific grin could not be more evil looking uh, so we move into Rachel's house where we find out she has, uh, I lost track, was it two or three siblings? I think she has two younger sisters. Okay, two younger sisters. Yeah, we get to meet, uh, their names are Jordan and Sarah, and it's really only a brief look, but we get, you know, just like the basic facts of Rachel's life are that she's living with her mom and her sisters. Uh, the father does not live with them. Uh, we'll get more into her relationship with her father in later books. But here we have the mom, who is a very busy woman, works as a lawyer, and essentially the family dynamic established here is that Rachel has a pretty loving relationship with her family, but they're all sort of busy and frayed and overworked and stressed, you know, and they all support each other, but they can't really confide too much in any of them, you know, because the mom's not going to go to the kids and talk about legal matters much. Rachel's not going to tell any of them about slug aliens, but it's still just sort of sweet little banter they have about ordering pizza and stuff like that. It strikes me that if this is like a medium to small sized town and you're looking for people to control, uh, one of the prominent lawyers in the town would be a pretty good target to uh, put a slug into. Yeah, in terms of just like who is already a controller... There's definitely not necessarily that much sense yet, you know, because to a certain degree, it's like, ultimately, you want to get everyone, you know, so you would want everyone, and maybe there's some room for wiggle room of, you know, some people maybe, even if they're not that useful, they are easier to infect first, and some people will be more tricky, you know, like, I think this as a spoiler is fine, that, like, at this point, you know, like, the governor is not possessed or like the president and like the threat of those things will be a big looming danger in future books of just like really heavy heads of state you know who like yurks would want but also have extra security detail to make it difficult you know but at the same time it doesn't speak well of the state of the yurk invasion if they've deemed to put two of their main operatives in an assistant principal and in tom who is literally just a high school boy <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, actually thinking about it, if that's like Chapman's like the highest ranking Yuck we've seen so far, that's really lame. <laughs> you couldn't even get the mayor? It's giving very early days invasion. I guess like they landed and Chapman just happened to be walking by. <laughs> <laughs> They said, we just got here. <laughs> Not even the principal, the assistant principal. What about the head of the school board? Get him. Invasion hierarchy regardless. Um, we flash later to Rachel's discussing things with everyone else. They have a little bit of an argument about Rachel morphing in front of that one guy. And like, what about the security if someone saw you morphing? But also... You know, there's just the obvious thing of, well, your safety, you know. Uh, I was gonna say, fuck that. Yeah. Like, she was in real danger there. Yeah, and, like, Marco's still mad, but, like, the rest of the characters tell her to, uh, tell him to chill out about it, you know, because of her safety. And hopefully it'll be fine, and they're not acting like controllers. Hopefully they won't mention it to someone. And also, they don't know Rachel by name, you know, so it's sort of, like, vague fret, but just, like, should be fine also again she was in the right because safety on multiple levels and at this point they start talking about planning to spy on chapman and using melissa to get close to chapman and they start talking about what sort of animal morphs they can use for that sort of mission and talking about small animals uh to include talking about well when jake turned into a lizard his tail got stomped off Someone suggests a cockroach. Cassie goes gross. So we don't get any insect morphs yet. But I do look forward to the day when these books get to the point where I get to see you reacting to beautifully illustrated insect morphs. We get a little bit of insect in this. Spoiler alert. I suppose technically. But believe me when I tell you that the worst of the body horror is yet to come. Okay, good. But anyway, um... Rachel has the epiphany about morphing the cat because obviously, you know, small animals are one thing, but even better than like a pest or an insect would be a literal pet. And essentially we get the recon mission in the neighborhood where they are scouring the neighborhood yards for where Fluffer the kitty is at because he's an indoor-outdoor cat and they're trying to find him. The kids are all, like, lurking in the bushes like it's a cartoon. And Tobias is serving overhead view and hawk morph, or rather just, you know, now hawk body. And Cassie has a bit of dialogue about being like, remember, when you do get to be in cat morph, act normal. They'll notice if their pet isn't acting like a cat. And Tobias tracks down the cat, and they try to reach out for Fluffer McKitty try to, you know, send their, send their vibes, reach a hand out, just like good kitty, good kitty. And kitty hisses and scratches the fuck out of them. This is an exceptionally well-drawn cat, and Fluffer is terrifying. He's a little demon. It is a very good cat. And like, you know, running theme of these books, Chris Grine is good at drawing animals. You know, we have these nice whiskers, the nice fangs, the nice little cat nose. The movement of the tail. I appreciate the panel of Fluffer entirely in shadow on top of a tree branch that he's climbed, looking down at them with his glowing eyes. Horrifying. I love it. Um, so they wind up. Rachel turns into a shrew to get 
Fluffer to come down so that they can capture Fluffer so that she can get the morph for Fluffer. And it's this incredibly dangerous mission. She winds up losing control to like the shrew brain and has to get rescued. Right, but they do manage to capture Fluffer, but not until he uh, wrecks the shit out of all of them. Yeah, they like get him in a little cat carrier and we have like a panel of Rachel demorphed and she's just like, well, that wasn't so hard, I guess. And then we get the rest of them just looking at her silent as their faces are scratched the fuck up. And with regards to the shrew morph, it's horrifying on multiple levels. There's the like, anytime they morph a creature, they often will have a few minutes of adjustment period because they'll start out sort of in that animal's mental space and it takes effort to concentrate and get full control. And the shrew is just like this really anxious little utter prey, you know, of an animal. And they also point out that they're trying to lure the cat by being its prey. And, you know, maybe it'll be fine if he plays with her for a minute and they're able to lift him off quickly enough. But if he zooms in for the immediate kill and chomps, then there's the danger she's just gonna die immediately. Because they can heal from damage going back to human. But she's not going to be able to heal if she's just fucking dead. Yeah, it's... The, the, that they... Most of the time when you get, like, shapeshifty powers, certainly, like, superhero comics, there's always, like, a degree of strength that confers, whether you retain your human strength, whatever. Um, in this, you are just that animal, and there is not only a decent chance that you'll, like, forget how to act human for a while, but, like, also just whatever would normally be able to hurt or kill that animal can hurt and kill you. So if you're a shrew or a lizard or a fly, there's like an exceptional degree of danger to that. And it's just this really great trade-off with the like, the great everyday stealth animals are also ones that are inherently at high risk because they are things like a mouse or a fly that aren't actually top of the food chain. And Rachel ends up having this nightmare that's depicted in this entirely red-toned double-page spread of shrew Rachel surrounded by animal bones and maggots and just screaming, but at the same time just compelled going must-eat maggots even as she's screaming about the fact that she is eating maggots. It's lovely! That feel when you get in your morph and you end up eating maggots. And you have to live with the fact that you ate maggots. She didn't. She got, she didn't eat maggots. We didn't have the spider eating scene like we had last time. But it's a horrifying thought nonetheless. This is true. Um, so she wakes up and winds up vomiting uh, twice while thinking about it. Um, and uh, talking, to, talking to her younger sister, Jordan, who is able to tell that there's something going on with her lately, but like doesn't know what. Yeah, it's like already a good example of how these kids' social lives are entirely fucked up and upended by the situation because of the whole, you never know who's a controller, you can't tell anyone. So like not only does Rachel have a fucked up friendship with Melissa now because of Melissa and her parents being possessed, but her relationship with her own family is in turn going to be fucked up because she's never going to be able to talk about her feelings honestly again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Elden Dorf? Gorf? Morph? 
What? The 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 alien guy. Alfengor? Alfengor. Jesus Christ, I got that wrong. Um, Alfengor really fucked these kids over. I thought you were trying to make like an Elden Ring joke and I wasn't getting it. <laughs> I have no idea what Elden Ring even is aside from I guess it looks kind of Skyrim-y. So, big shrug on that. The way Trevor is going to fight you when they hear this and hear you go big shrug at Elden Ring. Um, I just don't know what it is. It's, it's a confusion shrug, not a not a lack of... Actually, I'm not interested or care because <laughs> I'm never going to wind up playing it. Yeah, so, my knowledge okay. of Elden Ring is just it is what Trevor has been obsessed with for months at this point and what Trevor is literally playing upstairs as we record right now. <laughs> I'm going to get hunted down. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, after all of this, we get more of the kids and their high school life, more awkward interactions, Rachel talking a little bit to Jake, uh, Rachel talking to Melissa as she continues to try and reach an olive branch, but Melissa just doing the sort of why do you care thing, you know, Melissa essentially at this point, because of the change in her parents, like feels like her parents don't love her anymore. And in turn, that's so uprooted her emotionally that, you know, she's having trouble trusting anyone, and it's just dreadful. In fairness, the, uh, things pretending to be her parents definitely don't really give a shit about her. So, yeah, the horrifying, like, reality of her feelings. Yeah, no, Melissa's just, it sucks to be Melissa in this comic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chapman remains terrifying. Uh, so moving forward, they go ahead and um, the two nights later decide to attempt their um, sneaky little cat mission. Um, so Rachel transforms into Fluffer's McKitty. God, that fucking name. Uh, in the meantime, scaring the shit out of uh, Marco like halfway through transformation. So there's, like, an, she immediately uh, starts, like, losing some focus on control of the cat form. The best part is when she walks into the house and she declares, My scent is everywhere. This whole area smells of me. This is home. This is all mine. <laughs> Territorial. Um, and they're having to remind her that this is not, like, her home and that she's on, like, an actual really dangerous mission. But also, she's a cat, and in this case, having the animal's emotional mental state means that she has all the confidence of a cat walking around knowing that she is in her kingdom that she owns and that she is the apex predator of. <laughs> Sorry, the phrase apex predator has not been the same for me since I watched One Woman 1984. <laughs> I'm sure there's a horrible line of dialogue I'm missing. I haven't seen it. Oh, there's this amazing bit where um, it's like 80% of the way through the movie and um, Kristen Wiig turns to the main villain and she wants him to use his magical abilities to turn her into an apex predator. And the next time she shows up, she looks like a garbage cheetah monster. Because she's cheetah, but like a really lame, terrible version of it. And it just remains so fucking funny to me. She doesn't mention wanting to become a cat. Like, it had nothing to do with cats. It was so dumb. Anywho, bad <laughs> movies aside. Moving on. There's just continue to be really nice cat art here. There's just, like, some zoom-ins on just, like, the cat's face that just make me think about my cat's funny little faces. 
Um, we get anglings of perspective to help emphasize um, her now smaller stature in terms of like how she occupies and relates to the physical space of the house, you know, and as she's walking through the house, we really get emphasis on how much being made into controllers has fucked with these people's behavior because just the complete and utter lack of anything as these human controllers go about their day. We begin with the mother just mindlessly cutting a carrot. No music on, no bantering to herself, nothing, just serious expression as she's probably literally thinking about how stressed she is because any yerk that fucks up is likely to get just fucking murdered horribly by Visser Free. But it's just this creepy scene of Cat Rachel walking by the silent mom chopping carrots. She's not even looking at the fucking carrot. Yeah, she's like looking straight ahead. She's about to chop a finger off. I... Uh, incredibly unsafe, but also incredibly creepy. And then she also goes to the living room of Chapman, and there's the TV, but the TV is not on. He is just sitting absentmindedly waiting for the time for his meeting with Visser Free. I feel like if I was a slug, I would have better things to do than this. Maybe they don't know enough human culture yet to fully appreciate TV as a distraction. I, I'm just like, why are you taking over if you've got no fucking, like, he's not even doing yerk things. He's just sitting there. What's the point? Why does your culture exist if it's like this? I also like the absent-minded ways that they look at the cat, or like they logically understand what it is that it's a pet, but the like yurks feel no affection for it, and they're just looking at it like it's some utterly unrelated entity in the house to not pay attention to, of just, there's the yurf animal. Over there. They can't even see how objectively adorable Fluffers is. Yeah, and... After a while of staring at the blank TV, Chapman looks at his watch, makes his way down to a room in the basement. Rachel, like, slowly makes her way following behind to try to not be too obvious before, like, sleeking in through the doorway and trying to stay mostly out of sight. It's essentially just, like, a basement office room where she, like, hides in the shadows under a desk and Chapman pushes some buttons on the computer. It's now time for his meeting with Visser Free. Uh, it's like a hologram technology Visser Free meeting. Like, Visser is not there in person. It's it's every time Darth Vader calls the Emperor in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And I'll read the opening dialogue. Welcome, Visser. NS-226 of the Sulp Niarpool submits to you. May the Candrona shine and strengthen you. As a fan of sci-fi stuff, how do you feel about, about this sci-fi jargon? It's fair. It does say a lot that these people name themselves with numbers for me to go, wow, you really don't have a culture of your own. You are just a species that is awful. Like, that's the immediate trope is as soon as you stop, like, having names but have, like, a basis in cultural history and just start having numbers, your species has gone too fucking far down, like, the emotionalist jackass hole. Just very immediate, like, expendable drone culture. Your only use is your function. If you don't function, you die. And that is basically the summary of the meeting, because it's viscer-free going, Why have you not found those Andalites yet, bitch? 
It's, you know, it's just Visser Free being angry. And at a point in this conversation, the Visser notices the cat in the background and asks what it is. And we get the description. It's called a cat. It's an Earth species used as a pet. And Rachel is just trying to act like a normal cat and uninterested and like licking her paw and not paying too much attention to it. The Visser asks Chapman to kill it because of like the threat of an Andalite morph. And, you know, Rachel has to try and not react because if she reacts and it'll show that she knows what they're saying and a cat wouldn't understand. So she starts rubbing herself against Chapman's legs and meowing for food. And so follows the best scene in the entire graphic novel. Uh, my favorite scene of any animals thing thus far that I have experienced. This is beautiful and amazing. Uh, in which Visa 3 becomes a massive fan of cats. So <laughs> he's confused about what it's doing. Um, and so Chapman explains it's making the sound the cat makes. Uh, I believe it wants to eat. And then this is three who has this terrifying scorpion tail because he's in an Andalite body, um, like whips his hologram tail at the cat. And Rachel does a very good job of like going into full defensive cat mode, you know, the ears flattened back, hissing at the threat. And Vissa laughs and says, what a ferocious little beast. See how it does not, did not back away or run. I am many times his size and yet it stands its ground. A pity that the species is too small to serve as a host. He loves cats. Ideally, the Yerks could be possessing cats. It's like this, if we could just possess cats, we could own the planet. Yeah, just a nice scene of Visser Free acknowledging the worthiness of house cats as a species. <laughs> and just more arguments about, like, killing the cat. Chapman says that getting rid of the cat would potentially draw attention. It would, like negatively impact the girl and just might seem like strange behavior and just like living with it normally is like a better cover and the viscer is just like fine for now but before the call ends we get some more sadistic viscer free talk where his hologram self it's like showing him morphing into this hideous creature with like a tube neck structure no eyes giant mouth like lots of sharp pointy teeth and is positioning his hologram self so that chapman's head is within the hologram creature's mouth and just telling chapman the sort of i gave you your position i can take it away sort of thing and then he shows video footage of the last yerk that upset him and failed the mission where he pulled the yerk slug out of the human's ear and crunched it. And presumably swallowed and digested. Yeah, he he ate him. Which makes him a cannibal. It's fun. Yep. <laughs> Visser free eating things that displease him is a whole thing. Uh, so Rachel managed sort of a really lucky escape through sheer bluffing um, and has gotten upstairs... We get a conversation between Chapman and, um, well, controller Chapman and Chapman's controller wife about the Viss's orders. Oh, it was important earlier. They they mentioned the Candrona, which I assume is the thing that we're going to get filled in more. Um, but Rachel wants to find out more about it. But before she's able to get out of the house, uh, Melissa comes downstairs wanting help with her math homework. 
and gets sent back up to her room. So Rachel goes up and as uh, Fluffer comforts Melissa and tries to be there for her friend. And this whole time, she's still within range of the other Animorphs who are like thought speaking at her, telling her she needs to hurry up in terms of time in the morphing clock. And she keeps telling them, no, I have things I need to do. And that specifically means still being in the cat morph and purring and cuddling up against Melissa as the only thing in the house that Melissa doesn't think hates her. It's an incredibly touching scene. She basically just cuddles and comforts Melissa until she goes to sleep and then makes it out alive, shockingly. Yeah, and essentially the debriefing meeting, Rachel doesn't tell them everything that's happened. She essentially says that Chapman was in communication with the Visser and that like the Visser is still really, really wants to catch them or the Andalites that he thinks they are. And she neglects to mention any of the part about how the Visser saw her and almost killed her. Yeah, the fact that he's suspicious of the cat. Yeah, and essentially what's going to happen after some more planning is that Rachel is going to go back into the house to try and spy on them again in Cat Morph. And it's the same sort of deal of she's going to slink behind them, try to be stealthy hiding in the room, once again in the basement. But the other Animorphs know something's up. They know she's being cagey and not telling the full story. So what happens is that Jake has morphed into a flea. And essentially in terms of like the kids meeting up, like Jake morphs and tells the other kids what he's doing, but not Rachel. So he like reaches flea morph before Rachel shows up. Uh, They make sure the flea gets on cat form Rachel, and he is now in the room accompanying her. And because he's a flea, he doesn't have anything analogous to the sort of senses that humans or cats have. All he can feel is like some directions of movement and like smell of blood. But he is entirely reliant on Rachel to tell him what's happening. And she is observing everything of Chapman and the Visser. And... Jake is sort of trapped without any knowledge beyond what Rachel tells him as she just conveys what's happening. Uh, so that's the point where Rachel confesses that Vissa suspected that the cat could be in Morph and probably seeing the cat in his next secret meeting with Chapman once again hanging out in the basement is going to kind of confirm those suspicions. And for a while, she does a good job staying hidden But then Chapman shifts in his chair, and like that leg of the chair bumps up against her, causing her pain and to hiss out, which then Visser Free is just like, that confirms it, kill it. And uh, the Visser gives the orders to kill the cat, or well, actually not to kill the cat. This time the order isn't to kill the cat, but rather that he's going to meet the Visser, bring the cat, presumably the Andalite and Morph, for Visser to get to deal with himself, and also bring the daughter, who is the only member of the family not yet made into a controller. And they're going to be, like, settling all of this family's security openings at the same time. And essentially we learn that Melissa's parents are essentially voluntary controllers, meaning that they took on the Yerks of their own free will. The mother was first, and then the father sort of followed suit 
in a bargain of essentially saying, I'll do it if you leave my daughter alone. And the Visser and the Yurks obviously weren't going to keep that deal long term. It's an alien invasion. They just led the humans along. But upon hearing this, the humans that the Yurks are possessing, the actual man Chapman and his wife, the actual human parents, begin to fight against the Yurks and can barely do anything, but can momentarily get enough strength up to start strangling and hitting themselves. It's this extremely comedic scene of these two just, like, flailing around and falling over in their living room for no apparent reason. Yeah, I really like the way that the human Chapmans are portrayed here. Apparently, uh, Melissa's mother was down with the alien invaders and volunteered, and then Chapman did it because the yerk that was now controlling his wife was like, well, the daughter can get controlled. Why the hell anyone would agree to have a slug put into their brain unless their children were being directly threatened, I don't know. Like, I don't care if the slug people- like, I would understand humans who work with the slug people, because those humans are planning on not getting slugs put in their brain and becoming successful off of allying with the slug people. I don't get the humans who agree to get slug people put inside their heads, because then you're not in control anymore, so what's the fucking benefit? Yeah, it's it's very short-sighted. Ultimately, the Yurks are able to mostly wrestle control back, but Chapman is aware that if they do possess Melissa and everything, and, like, if the host body remains... Completely uncooperative. Yeah, that it'll be a problem in terms of him keeping his cover, and that's gonna be sort of part of the argument with the Visser. But at this point, the orders are clear to still bring the Andalite and Morph, aka Rachel, and in the meantime, the daughter gets left behind to be dealt with later. And so we arrive back at a scene with those nice alien spaceships descending again, and we essentially have Rachel and Jake all on their own, and Cat and Flea Morph staring down at Visser and all of his people arriving with just the deadly threat of the Visser and Hork-Bajir and Taxons, and they are trapped, the two of them, in Cat and Flea Morph. And they're in a cat carrier, which the cat cannot get out of. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that's also a good point to mention too. The cat can't move. They're also literally trapped. Like, I do think that if Fluffer was up against this threat, Fluffer could win. But Fluffer cannot win against the cat carrier. The cat carrier is more of a hindrance and more of a threat than Viscer Free. No, really though! Um, so, Controller Chapman, and then briefly, um, after being allowed Control to address Visser 3, Human Chapman both basically are talking to Visser and trying to negotiate on behalf of not possessing Melissa, because then Human Chapman will just go into full rebellion mode and will make sure that there's no way that, like, cover can be maintained. And Visser winds up agreeing and allowing uh, Melissa to go free. Meanwhile, they are now taking Rachel and Jake into the alien spaceship that they came in uh, to wait for them to have to transform back into Andalites, they assume. It's going to be two minutes to lift off, and Vistar is so pissed by this, he kills one of the taxons that's his crew members. This guy's a terrible fucking boss. 
Yeah, because he says get us in the air. One of the taxons just says how long it's going to be. And he's displeased of how long it's going to take to get the machine running. So he slashes it with his tail, like dismembers it, and tells the rest of the taxons for two of them to get the plane off the ground and the rest of you may feed on this fool. Taxons, we talked about cannibals earlier. Taxons are most definitely straight up cannibals as a whole thing. Uh, cannibalism as evil is a recurring theme here. Yeah, and... Fleaform Jake gets out of the carrier and, like, transforms back into human form but immediately starts transforming into his tiger form. Like, in the shadows where they can't see him because he, like, hopped pretty far as a flea. Uh, so he probably got away with this. Although they, they really need some proper cameras in this spaceship because they should get a pretty clear shot of him anywhere, but I'm assuming the cameras are crap. Yeah, yeah, there's at least no cameras on him. But yeah, he's jumped through the cage, morphing to Tiger. Meanwhile, Rachel is able to stick a paw out of one of the slots in the carrier, manages to strategize morphing her hand to morph it to human to undo the lock on the outside to then let herself out at which point she starts walking out of the carrier as fluffers mckitty with rachel's human hand <laughs> it's such a weird visual because it's just this hu huge human hand on this little cat body just like on the ground like a paw and so the taxons see and start shouting at um visa three who tells him to shut up because he is a bad boss, at which point he gets jumped by Tiger Jake, who starts clawing at him and is like clearly biting into his side. Um, meanwhile, Rachel makes her escape, and Jake and her run out of there. Of course, we get a great double-page spread of the giant, I want to say rock monster thing, with four legs and two hands that um, Rissa 3 has turned into this time in order to try and kill the very small fluffer cat it's very jrpg boss just classic rock golem sort of ideas what the monster morph here is which part of the fun conceptually of viscer free and his andalite body and morphing and just all the aliens in the universe is that he can just turn into fucking anything you want any sort of new monster so that he can, like, be a fret and, like, be a visually different fret every time. Just, what do you feel like drawing or whatever? Here he is. New question on, on morphing dynamics, which I know we spent, last time we covered animals, we talked about this kind of thing a lot. But if someone is morphed into something, could you get the ability to morph into that thing by touching them while they're in that morph? From my memory, which is not fact, so don't take it as 100%. But I think the answer is no. That makes sense. I think it has to be the original creature. Okay. Because I would... If that was possible, every time Vista 3 does one of these things, I would, like, quickly run up and just, like, hug his leg for a second. Problem solved. He'll lose his, like... He'll, he'll zone out for a minute. And you've got a cool rock monster for later. Yeah. Literally, he zones out for a minute. Everyone else gets more of a head start. And you've got the more. Well, also the other problem too with it though is that they can only acquire the DNA in their base form. So in their human morph. So like in Visser's case, they'd have to be in human form touching them, which would be more than a little suspicious. 
Okay, that's fair, but I'm sure at some point he's going to find out that they're kids. We'll get there in a long time. It will be a long time before that. That makes sense. But, like, as soon as he finds out, you know, that kind of... That immediate threat to their families kind of ends the series, so... Uh, Rachel uses her fantastic cat agility to escape because cats are, of course, superior to all other living creatures. This is a fact. Uh, and with little, and a little bit of help from Tobias being able to fly her out, I guess. Um, she's only got a few like minutes left before she has to morph back into human or she'll be stuck as a cat forever. So Tobias is able to throw her into the trees and they're able to keep their secret and get out of there safely. And, like, the final note is, like, Rachel sending Melissa an anonymous letter that says, Melissa, your father loves you more than you will ever know, and more than he can ever show you. Someone who knows. And then, no name signature, just the A from the original Animorphs logo. So just, frankly, highly suspicious. And they're where it's kind of strategically... Not necessarily the smartest decision, but we're going to do it anyway. And yeah, we just wrap up on Rachel doing this deed for her friend and a little flash to the group all together talking about moving forward. And the final lines are just, there will be a next time, Marco. There will always be a next time until the Andalites return. So just the fight continues. And that's it for volume two. Um, as I said, I liked it even more than I enjoyed the first one. I thought especially the two sequences as the cat in the basement where there's like a lot of tension. I really liked that we dug into more about Rachel and like, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, we did. We One of the things that I said I wanted after we finished that first one was like, well, I need to know more about the other characters, especially both of the girls, and we found out more about them. I'd say Marco is still about as underdeveloped as before, except for, like, now I kind of just dislike him, but, um... Do you want me to spoil what order the characters' books are gonna go in? Do you care if I do that? Not at all. Next time is going to be Tobias, followed by Cassie, and Marco is gonna be book five, so you still have a while before you get a Marco Pove book. Well, so far as I'm concerned, that's okay. He's a little jackass. Yeah, I think what's really notable going from book one to two was like, while book one is a Jake book and we get a little bit of his problems, it's like... It also has so much heavy lifting it has to do. Exactly. Whereas this is more able to devote more time to really just feeling like a Rachel book specifically. And it sort of centers the conflict on a personal level that the first isn't able to, to the same degree because of all the heavy lifting. Like Jake has the whole thing with Tom, but there's also the elf and gore and the morph power giving from elf and gore and the attack on the yerk pool. Whereas this entire book centers on Rachel seeing how her friend's life has been utterly fucked up by the invasion, and that just giving her all the more reason to keep doing what she's doing. Yeah, the Yurks suck. They are so awful. And they're also, like, they suck, and they're not happy themselves. At least, like, we get real hints here. Well, 
not hints, it's not that stuff. Like, we just get straight up, you know, just depiction that the Yurks and the invasion working under Visser Free are miserable and don't even feel, like, safe and, like, they're getting the spoils of their actions. It's like, there's definite, like, disharmony in the Yurk hierarchy going on, too. I don't know why they're even doing this. What's even on Earth that's so valuable to these guys? It's essentially just continued desire for expansion into the universe and humans being fairly capable host bodies of just like expendable bodies it's just sort of sci-fi alien that possesses things wants to keep possessing things and just expand and Ah. that they'll largely just be like manpower so manifest destiny or deciding that the third reich has to be a certain size of the country it's we we should own that. It's over there. It should be ours. It's very much just taking, yeah. Um, I suppose, do you have any final thoughts you want to give on Animorphs before we wrap up? Um, more credit to Chris Grine for absolutely killing it again. Uh, we keep talking about how amazing his heart is, and it's really spectacular. So, yeah, um, apparently he's done something called Time Shifters, which I'll definitely need to seek out to read that too, because that also looks like it's incredibly well-drawn and creative. Yeah, he has, like, a lot of original work, like, kids' graphic novels that he's done too, that maybe I'll check out someday if any of them happen to come into work. Um, but yeah, no, that's it. So, um, I guess I should introduce next time. Yeah, what will be... What will be... What will we be reading next time? Uh, next time, we are heading to a galaxy far, far away to talk about Star Wars for the first, and no, it probably won't be the only time. There's a lot of Star Wars comics, and, and a lot of them are actually good. Um, but in this case, we're talking about the 2015 Darth Vader series. Uh, this is the first one um, after Disney bought it up, so it's the first one back at Marvel. Uh, we'll be talking about issues 1 through 6 written by Kieran Gillen and with, I believe, all of the art being done by Salvador La Roca. I think it's a really great example of what can happen when you actually make a tie-in comic good and interesting and providing something useful to the narrative of the overall story of the franchise. I made that sound way more corporate than it was supposed to. It's good. It's good. It's good comics. That was the official Marvel-sponsored solicit for you. <laughs> But no, I mean, like, because the strength of the series is that basically Gillen looked at it and looked at the time period in which he had to write a Darth Vader story and then came up with, well, what changed for Vader between the movies? And I will do a story about that. So it is about Vader's rise to power after having just been the one survivor of the worst military disaster. And we'll talk about this next week. The main thing is it's introducing Dr. Aphra, Triple Zero, and BT, who are the best characters in all of Disney Star Wars, and are wonderful and amazing, and you will love the droids. I am looking forward to the serial killer robots. They're fantastic. Yep, but with that said, uh, thank you all for listening. Join us next week for Star Wars, and we will get back to Animorphs eventually. Book Free comes out in October, and we will definitely be covering that too. But in the meantime, bye. Bye, everyone. Right, 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 right. Oh, 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 oh.